faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from each unrighteousness. You know, so the reality of, the, of our lives is that we are uh, positionally forgiven once and for all. And we have been credited or justified with the very righteousness of Christ in heaven. So we have that position, and we can never lose that position. Uh, once you're in the family, you're always a part of the family. And that's why we're children of God, and we can call out to him. And we have the Spirit of God within us who, who prays for us when we know not how to pray. And all these great and wonderful things related to our permanent relationship. But we can step out of fellowship, and uh, just like we can step out of the fellowship in our own families. And uh, so that happens by the uh, personal sin. So when we commit personal sin, we're not, we're not walking with the Lord, you know. We're not fellowshipping with him. So to restore that, we need to, just like we would in an earthly relationship, we'd go to that person and we would confess and uh, be restored. And the good thing about God is he's not like people. He doesn't hold it over against us even after we go to him. Uh, he doesn't, you know, allow bitterness to well up against us and, you know, make us feel like we're still not accepted. But the moment we confess, we are totally uh, accepted back in fellowship with him. And he has, you know, put it behind him. That's what the word forgive means. It means to send away, to send something away. And when we confess, he forgives us. He sends that away. He's never going to bring it up again. You don't need to live after you've confessed thinking, you know, that he's still holding it against you. Okay? So we have this time to confess if you need to. But really, this is something you take care of, hopefully, just on an individual basis, just, just daily. Right? It's just sort of the way of spiritually managing that moment-by-moment moment life. And so let's, let's just have a moment for it now, and uh, then we'll look at his word. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here, a fellow group of believers that you've knit together at this time and place in world history for your purposes, for the building up of the body of Christ, which is, is the function of the Lord Jesus Christ during this age. He says, I will build my church. And that means to not just build numerically, but also to build up spiritually. And uh, we pray that uh, he is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, which we know from Philippians 2, 12, and 13 he is. Um, but that we will fulfill our important aspect of being conformed to the word of God by having our minds transformed through the intake of the word of God. And uh, may we realize that it can't be exhausted and, and we're all in process somewhere along the way. And uh, we need to take every thought captive more and more each day as we progress. And we pray that we are consistent in doing so. And also to remember that we've been given a commission to go into all nations and uh, thereby make disciples of people, true apprentices of the Lord Jesus Christ who want to walk with him uh, in thought and also in deed. And uh, that this is what you're really looking for. You're looking for believers who will be fruitful in this world. And uh, we pray those that we are some of those people. So uh, we also pray for the time that follows as we share together in a meal and fellowship and uh, pray that we can have good conversation and things that are uplifting and, and uh, talking about your word and wonderful things that you're doing and even the trials and so forth that we're facing at this time and uh, how the Lord is sustaining us and uh, pray that we can uh, 
face those difficulties by uh, counting it all joy, by finding the fact that you're at work in us to improve us. You're doing something in our lives. And while it may not make sense now, uh, in the end it will all make sense. And we will see that you are at work uh, through all things to bring about some good end. So we ask for a blessing upon the teaching of your word today as we look at your word itself and the doctrine of inspiration and revelation. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week uh, I was gone to the Chafer Theological Seminary Conference, which I usually go to every year since I'm a board member and faculty there as well, and I sort of need to be there for our biggest meeting of the year. But anyway, I didn't want to share about that so much uh, as I did a couple of the main speakers, just to kind of give you some highlights briefly of what was spoken about. There were two main, two main speakers, one of which was Steve Gurr. He's a, he was a Jew, but he's a believer. So some people call him Messianic Jews, but anyway, he's a, a Christian, right? And uh, he gave lessons on Messianic prophecy in the law, which would be Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Messianic prophecy in the uh, prophets, and Messianic prophecy in the writings, the three basic portions of the Old Testament are the law, the prophets, and the writings. So he looked at the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and then what he did was, of course, was show how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. Uh, and most of these were pretty common from the law and some from the prophets, but we're less familiar usually with these from the writings and uh, some in the prophets, but it was really interesting and, and excellent. I knew Steve a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, when I was in seminary. Um, I used to get to sit around with him every once in a while, uh, so it was good to meet him again. The other speaker was Dr. McGinnis, and I'll share a little bit more about him. He's someone I'd never been exposed to, but he's at Baptist Bible Seminary. And um, he spoke, he's an expert really in uh, Hebrew poetry of the Old Testament, but he spoke on the, the artistry of Hebrew narrative and the artistry of Hebrew poetry. And uh, I'll give you a little glimpse of what he was basically doing. What he was doing with the narrative is he would take the elements of narrative that we find. So narrative is basically storytelling, right? So he would take the elements of storytelling uh, as things like the setting, the scene, the plot, the conflict, the characters. Are these full characters or are they flat characters? And it's interesting, there's a lot of flat characters in biblical stories. In other words, they don't really fulfill much function. You know, they're there just, in many cases, just to die. Uh, literally, you'll see somebody in there, and then they'll say, and then they died. Uh, so uh, they're flat characters, but full characters are the characters that the story revolve around. So he would s segment out a section of Scripture into these various parts, like what's the scene, what's the setting, who are the characters, are they flat or full, what's the plot, conflict, what's the resolution, you know. And disciplining us to do that in Hebrew narrative so that we can find what is the author's intent. What is the main point the author is trying to make? Um, and this is a helpful tool in narrative to, to do that, to accomplish that. So, for example, in Genesis 4, 1 through 12, we have a narrative, uh, the Cain and Abel event, right? And uh, Eve is a, also in that story, but she's really a flat character, even though she's mentioned. Uh, there's nothing there much other than she had a son named Cain. But... Um, what he, through this process, this is what he determined, just out of interest, okay? That the main, he said this, he said the main teaching of Genesis 4, 1 through 12 is that 
God gave Cain grace. Okay, in the sense of an opportunity okay, to bring another offering. Okay? And Cain disobeyed, and Cain was cursed. Okay? And you've heard of the, the mark of Cain or whatever, that he would be a, a wanderer. Okay? So through that process, he narrowed in that that is the main teaching of the passage. Now, everybody didn't like this. Okay? A lot of people did not like this conclusion, so it went challenged. So I'm just introducing you to a little bit of discussion that took place. What they didn't like was that there are later passages, such as in Hebrews 11, which talk about, uh, by faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice. And they argued, counter to Dr. McGinnis, that the issue in Genesis 4 was the nature of the sacrifice. Okay, in other words, Abel brought a lamb, or the first of his flock, and uh, Cain brought grain. So they argued that the point of the passage in Genesis was the nature of the sacrifice. Now, uh, Dr. McGinnis didn't disagree that that's an, an, an element and that it's a truth, but he said it's not the main truth that's being taught in Genesis 4. And this went on back and forth for a while, uh, but here's what is important to understand okay, in this discussion. A later passage like Hebrews 11, do we need that to tell us what Genesis 4 means? In other words, did the people in who originally read Genesis 4, which would have been the Israelites, wandering out around in the wilderness when Moses penned it, okay, would they have been able to understand from Genesis 4 alone? Because they don't have Hebrews 11. <laughs> Hebrews 11 hadn't come yet, okay? Would they have been able to understand Genesis 4 on its own, see, left to itself? And so you have to end up, or you should end up saying, yes, that had to have meaning and the, under, the intent had to be understood by them. Uh, they couldn't wait for Genesis or, or Hebrews 11 to come along. And so the important thing then as far as study and exegesis and how you do it is you always interpret a passage on its own, okay? And you discover what it meant to the original audience, in this case Genesis 4, and what it meant to the Israelites, which is to say, in essence, okay, it's a picture or a lesson for them as a nation that if you disobey like Cain did, what? You'll be cursed and you'll be struck out of the land wandering. And isn't that exactly what the Old Testament story of Israel is about under the Mosaic law? If you disobey the law, you'll be cursed and you'll be out wandering. Okay? So, what we... You see how this helps us really understand the original intent of Genesis 4. And before we go to you know, Hebrews and say, well, it's about the nature of the sacrifice, and Cain brought the wrong sacrifice, and that's the story. Okay? Now, what have we done? We've really missed the story okay, as far as its original aim and purpose. Okay, so he helped a lot with how to, how to go about doing this. And, of course, that's what we're always seeking to do here. Now, he also... Just out of interest, I think there'll be a lot of interest for people here. He's an expert on the Song of Songs. Uh-oh. We can't talk about that book uh, in church or anywhere uh, because that's erotic. Um, you know, this is the most undertaught book in the whole Bible. How many of you have ever heard the book of Song of Songs taught? 
Okay. A handful, maybe five, maybe. Okay. That's pretty typical, right? Um, I've almost taught it twice here. <laughs> but then you're always like, ah, I don't know. I just don't know. How am I going to handle two breasts? And, you know, how am I going to handle all these things? Um, so I, I may actually do this or try to do this soon and kind of jump in the middle of a series and teach some of it because I've kind of wanted to for a long time. But he had an interesting perspective. Um, of course, he went through the same thing, setting, characters, so forth and so on. Who are the daughters and all this stuff. His, his idea was that it's not, it's not Solomon's writing it, but it's not Solomon and it's not any of his marriages. He had a thousand you know, women or whatever. That He's not depicting anything that he got to enjoy. Okay? He, he didn't get any of this. Okay? He did not have the joys of you know, one wife. Okay? But he wrote about it. He wrote about the way it was God intended it to be. And um, another thing he did that was interesting was I've heard this said over and over in Song of Songs that you've got like periods, like you've got a courtship taking place and then you've got a wedding and then you've got a marriage. He said, no, it's all in marriage. There's not one part of it that's in courtship. And he showed how some of the verses were... uh, Let's just say mistranslated, okay? Like, uh, like love is sometimes not love. It's really um, love-making. And a lot of those passages were put in the context of courtship by commentators. But really, they're not talking about, you know, like I love somebody, like we're courting and we're moving toward marriage. But they're talking about the act of love-making. For example, maybe you heard this song. Uh, we used to sing this all the time in Campus Crusade, you know. Uh, his banner over me is love, okay, and the description of, or explanation was that the banner is, is that, uh, usually is that Solomon was taking one of his women that he was courting into this banquet, and there was this banner, you know, and, and uh, he's bringing her there and showing her off to the crowd and all this stuff. Um, actually, the banner is a victory banner. It means he had conquered her and that she wanted to be conquered, and it's talking, obviously, about lovemaking it and and I don't think now anymore, if you go on a college campus, you'll probably want your daughter or son, you know, singing his banner over me as love <laughs> uh, like they do. Uh, because that's not, it, it's a little more erotic than, than that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, very interesting stuff. And here's the thing that's so important about it. And it's the reason I've thought about teaching it a number of times. is because our kids are going to learn about this. Okay, but here's the thing. I mean, you know, we're talking like 13, 12. We're talking 12, 10, 11, 12. They're going to learn about this. They're going to hear about it. Here's the issue. Do you want them to learn about it the world's way or do you want them to learn about it God's way? If you don't beat the world to the punch, it's soured it. It's soured it. It becomes sour milk. And um, yes, there has to be a way of talking about it. okay. Uh, but, I mean, it's part, is it, it or is it not part of the Word of God? Is it or is it not a beautiful picture of the way God designed it to be? But we, ne- thank you, <laughs> thank you, but we neglect it, right? We neglect it because of fear, okay? But what we're actually doing probably is a disservice to our young people and really even to ourselves um, because you know, usually if you, if you read it correctly and you study it correctly, what, what do you want to do home? You want to go home and you want to be with your mate, 
you know, because you want to share in the joys of something God created. And uh, maybe you've neglected that. Maybe you haven't, you know, let's say, done it correctly in the sense of wooing and, and the kind of love and, com- and passion and, and ardor and zeal that you should have for your mate, okay? Okay, because all we do with marriage is loyalty. That's all we do. You know, we never go to the romantic dimension, which is a part of who we are, the sexual dimension, right? We don't do that. Why? Because we're afraid, Okay, but God says, I'm not afraid. I'm going to tell you exactly how it should be. And uh, so maybe we'll, we'll look at that, okay, before, before I'm gone. Uh, at least then, see, I'll be gone and you won't, you know, can't. See? You know, so this is strategic, you know. I don't know, strategic. Okay. But obviously all for our, our, uh, our spiritual development and growth. Uh, and, of course, most of the churches just said, well, no, it's just a picture of God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God. No, 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 it's just... A picture of uh, the church's love for Jesus and Jesus' church for um, Jesus' love for the church. But I challenge you to make many of those statements have any meaning whatsoever relative to Jesus and me. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of where I was and some of the things I was, you know, thinking through while out of town. Um, let's go to the framework. Okay. Again, we're teaching a course right now called the framework where we deal with. Uh, the 22 major events of Scripture. And so let me just ask you some questions, okay? What is this course all about? What are we trying to do? What are the three basic elements uh, of this course? One is the historicity of the biblical events. We're emphasizing that, emphasizing that because that's being downplayed. Uh, people say, oh, creation didn't really happen like that. It's not a real historical event. It's just an allegory. Uh, so we're playing that up. What about the flood? Is that a real historical event? No, that's just a, that's just a children's story. So what are we doing? We're, we're playing that up. We're showing the historicity. The second element is uh, doctrinal. So we connect doctrines to these events, and they, not abstractly. We allow them to come out of the text. So at creation, we learn who God is. He's the creator. We learn who man is. He's a, he's a creature made in God's image, and we learn about nature. That's everything else God made. At the flood, judgment, salvation, we connect God judging and God saving. And we talk about different facets of judgment and salvation. Uh, and then the third element in this class is apologetics. Or, um, well, how do we give a defense for these things? And what is the world's answer? So, for example, if we go to uh, creation, obviously there's a, there's a counter story, right? That we're told in our culture, a myth. Uh, the myth of evolution, okay? And that whole story. So, we show how these collide, at what points they collide, and, and maybe sometimes also at what points they don't really collide, okay? So we understand if there could be some things we share. But usually where there's collision, and then how to discuss these things, okay? And how to work through these things with a person. Um, so now let's go to a little bit of application of this. If somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I mean, there's bad things that happen to kids in this world. I mean, it's terrible what humans do to kids, whether it's abortion uh, whether it's uh, mistreatment, sexual treatment of a child, the child can't do anything about it. Um, why are these things in this world, and why is God, God letting this happen? Okay, where are you going to go in the Bible to start formulating a response to this person? What event would you go to, first of all, or events? Okay, okay the fall, good. We're going to go to the fall. Why are we going to go to the fall? 
Because that's the introduction of evil and suffering in the world. So you've got to go there. I mean, you can't just start talking about it outside of the context of the fall. We also want to talk about another event that came previous to the fall. What do we want to go to? And, and why would we want to go to the creation? Creation. Why would we go to that? Because that would show that there was a time in history before the fall when such things wouldn't happen if we lived in that type of world. Children wouldn't be abused, okay? We wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have abortion, okay? We wouldn't even have spontaneous abortions, you know, that happen without anybody. It's nobody's fault, so to speak. The baby's just lost, right? Uh, because you live in the creation in a perfect world, okay? But now, due to the fall, okay, these atrocities happen. Now, embedded in the way I stated the question was it's God's fault. Did anybody catch that? Somehow it's God's fault that this stuff is there. But again, if we go to creation, what's his fault? His fault is that everything was perfect. If you want to fault him for anything, fault him for making everything perfect. Now, why did sin come into this world? Because God did something? No, see, it's because we did something in Adam. Okay? So now, now you can begin to formulate a response. It's not God's fault. Okay? We brought evil into this world. We brought suffering into this world. Okay? And then, of course, the question still remains, well, why is God permitting it to continue? Um, but, you know, these things also get resolved in the nature of the substitutionary blood atonement for children. These things get resolved in God uh, allowing men time to repent and so forth. And it also is answered in part by the fact that God only allows it to get so bad, and, and he won't let it get any worse before finally judging. So this is just food for thought about how we use the framework to give answers, not only just to others, but in our own soul, okay, so we can resolve these things. And uh, the event we're studying right now is uh, Mount Sinai, okay, it's the sixth or seventh that we've, the seventh, and it's a landmark event in the scripture, okay? And again, what we're trying to do here is get our imagination to flow with the historicity of it and see it in our mind's eye. Uh, our imaginations are amazing things that God has given us, okay? And we live in an age where there is a ton of influx of, of ideas that we use to fill our imagination, okay? The problem is that so many of those things that we're allowing in aren't godly things, okay? Most of them aren't, so they're worldly, and we are then distracted by the world and the things of the world, and because of that, we are defeated, okay? We, we live defeated lives. The only way to be victorious is to discipline ourselves. Um, Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself to godliness, okay? Look, it's not just going to happen, okay? You're not just going to be a godly person because you believed in Jesus Christ. That's not how it works any more than being a mature adult means you just have to be born into this world. No, there's a lot of steps to get to be a mature adult, and there's a lot of steps to become a mature believer. One of those, Paul says, is self-discipline. What does that look like? It means you have to consciously fill your mind with the images of Scripture, okay? Images like creation. I mean, like, literally, quit reading Genesis 1 and 2 blindly and read it as if you are a person Watching it, okay, in the, in the shoes of God, okay, watching as he speaks, things appear, okay? Read it as it was meant to be read. Read the fall as it was meant to be read as if you were there, okay? 
the same thing with the flood, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Exodus. Fill your mind's eye, your imagination with these ideas. That is powerful, okay? And so what that means then is these are the things that you're thinking about on a day-by-day basis. Not all the other stuff of the world, okay? And allowing that to fill your mind's eye and create for yourself all sorts of imaginary ideas or things that could happen or won't happen or you want to happen or whatever. But fill your mind's eye with the events of Scripture. Then as you think through them, uh, connect to them in your mind's eye daily. Just do this, the particular doctrines uh, that are illustrated in those stories, okay? Think of yourself this way. Think of yourself as in a prison and you don't have a Bible. What are you going to think about? If you aren't filling your mind's eye with these events and connecting these doctrines just daily, just disciplining yourself to do this, okay, like you would need to do if you're a prisoner to make it, like some of these POWs, right, during Vietnam and so forth and other wars, where the, the guys, that's all they had. All they had was whatever they'd stuck up here, okay? And we got to do the same thing because a lot of the day we're, we're in prison, aren't we? We're on the job. We can't be pulling out the Bible and doing it. I mean, we're working, right? So what are you going to, but you, you never get rid of this. You can go to this, you know, and cycle these things through your mind, okay? This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 12 where he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Have you ever thought about what the presupposition of that verse is? If my mind has to be renewed so I can be transformed, something must be wrong with my mind. And you said, no, there's something wrong with everybody else's mind. You know, I can name all those people and point them out to you, but I'm thinking correctly. Well, apparently we're not, okay? So our minds need to be renewed, and that is what brings about life transformation, okay? And that's, of course, what we're trying to do with this whole series is start with the history and fill our mind with that so it transforms into doctrine, into our behavior. It transforms our lives, okay? When we do this, what we're hoping in the long run is that we won't think that the grass is greener on the other side. You know how you're never happy where you are? You always think it would be better somewhere else. But when you get there, it's not. Why do we have to be convinced of that over and over, that it's not really greener on the other side? Because we're spiritual morons. That's why. I'm including myself. We just keep doing the same thing over and over. In fact, what we end up usually finding out is there's really not any green grass on the other side at all. It's just a barren landscape. Like, why did I want to be over here? So we're doing this, and with the Mount Sinai, what we try to fill our imagination with is the power of God on that mountain. There was a great storm with lightning. It was shaking, smoke, there was fire, and the voice of God boomed to over 2 million Israelites in that valley. And they said, uh, uh, Moses, uh, I you go talk to them and come back and tell us what he said because they were afraid. And so out of this, we get three communicative doctrines. Revelation, inspiration, and what? Canonicity. That's the one people, what are are we talking about? Canons here? You know, what are you, war? What are you talking about? Um, no, canon, like a, a canon of law books, would be a standard for legal procedures or something like that. A canon just means a standard or measure. So we'll get to that doctrine next week. The first two are somewhat clear. Revelation basically means God speaks. Okay? Basically it means that. Uh, we're, not, we're not going into de- too much detail of that, but right here we're mainly talking about verbal speaking. But he also speaks in nature, of course. 
This is what we see God doing at Mount Sinai, though, right? Speaking. I mean, it's pretty clear. Now, the idea that God could speak, that's been challenged, we said, by liberal theology in the early 1900s, and that's still with us, okay? They believe that there's a great barrier between God and man, and so God couldn't communicate to man in words. So that all that is left in most Christianity today is just experiencing God. Uh, Experiencing God through some encounter that makes God real to you. And uh, so what they said was, this book is not revelation. This is not revelation. This is simply stories okay, of people having experiences with God. But this itself is not the revelation of God. Okay? That's liberal Christianity still today. Okay? Now, why did they do that? Well, because they got into um, pagan theories of language. Um, they found paradoxes in language. I've mentioned some of these, like the Cretan, you know, all, li- all Cretans are liars. Well, if all Cretans are liars, if a, if a Cretan is saying this, then is he, then is he telling? He's not telling me the truth. You know, you, you get yourself in paradoxes, and that's been one that's historically cited. But then what they do is they take these uh, paradoxes in human language and they apply them to God, the Creator, and they say, well, since we as humans don't have a perfect system of language, and you can create paradoxes, then the Creator Himself can't speak in human languages without uh, these same paradoxes. And so language is imperfect. It has problems. And therefore, God can't speak to us in a coherent fashion. And that's why the Bible's not God's revelation to man. Okay? But the problem with what they're doing there is, uh, if you look at this diagram again, you've got the creator-creature distinction. Okay? And God speaks human language. Now, he does that. When he speaks human language, he's condescending to us. He's, bringing, he's putting himself on our level, so to speak, so that we can have an analogy of what he is like, of what he wants us to know. Okay, so he condescends to us, yes. But when, so in speaking human language, but when he speaks human language, it's not exactly like when we speak human language. And we know that because when God speaks, for example, in Genesis 1 or Christ in the Gospels at a miracle, well... A little bit more happens than what would happen if I said, let there be light. I mean, when I say let there be light, unless somebody's flipped a switch, nothing would happen. Okay? When he said let there be light, the whole cosmos, or whatever, was light. Okay? And it didn't even need a source. He was the source. He just created it. He just created light beams. You know? um, so, when he's, yeah, he speaks human language, but the point we're getting at here is because his language is also creative... It's not subject to the same limitations that our language is, such as the Cretan's paradox. Okay? So therefore, God can speak to us. He crafted us in his image so he could speak to us. And what we have in the Bible in human language, while human language itself is, it can be paradoxical and have limitations, what he's spoken to us here is sufficient to carry the truth from his mind to our mind. That's, that's the bottom line. It's not like the liberal says there's a big bear and he can't use it. No, this is the revelation of God. And it's sufficient, okay? So, um, we have a revelation from God in the Bible, okay? And uh, let's just have this one last word for the liberals. If there were a liberal theologian in the valley in front of Mount Sinai with all the other Israelites, it would be a little difficult for him to deny verbal revelation from God, right? What's the next question? The next question is, if we have revelation of God... Where do I find it? I mean, why is it in the Bible and it's not in the Quran? Why is it in the Bible and not in the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price? 
How do we answer that? We said, what is the difference between these books? Continuity of prophets. Continuity of prophets. What do we mean by this? We mean that there's something utterly unique in the Bible in terms of its prophets. In the Bible, you have over a thousand years of prophets' lives overlaying with one another, linking in a great chain, okay? So you've got Moses all the way to Malachi. That's the chain I'm speaking of here, okay? Each prophet's lives overlapping with the prophet before so that the information could be checked to make sure it was in harmony with everything that had been previously revealed and so forth and so on. Other religions say, you know, we got a word of, from God over here through one guy, you know, maybe Muhammad, you know, I had a vision or something like that. You know, I mean, if I followed every guy that had a vision, I mean, can you imagine? There's probably 50 people in, or 100 people in Fredericksburg that had a vision. You know, am I going to follow all these people, okay, just because they had a vision, okay? Same thing with Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, see? It's always some one guy got a word from God or something like that. So are we going to follow the one guy that says he got a word from God, or are we going to follow the continuity of prophets where you have a guy who says he got a word from God followed by another guy who says he got a word from God whose lives overlapped, and this went on for a 1,000 years, okay? And all of their writings are consistent, okay, and in harmony, okay? So this is the way God always does it. This is a pattern, okay, and God wants us to see this pattern. Uh, multiple prophets, okay. Um, the other thing is that all these other guys that came along, Muhammad and Joseph Smith and all the rest of them, they always do what? Start with the Bible. Why do they do that? Because they're trying to get an authority base. And they realize they don't really have one. It's just a vision or something like that, or God wrote on some plates or something like that. So what do they do? They always start, oh, well, let's get some authority back. Oh, yeah, we believe the Bible. Islam did that, right? Well, yeah, but the Bible got corrupted. Muhammad's the final prophet, right? He corrects all that. But still, what they do, they still had to appeal to the Bible. Okay? Same thing for Mormonism, right? I mean, if you go to a Mormon temple and you hear a presentation, what all are you going to hear first? You see a video, they're, they're only going to show you Bible verses. They're only going to show you Bible verses. What, why are they doing that? What about all their other books? Well, see, they want to get you in and thinking, oh, this is the same thing as the Bible. Uh, no. Okay? Good try, but no. Uh, but that's where they get most of their converts, right? From Christians who don't, they don't, they're no, they don't know. They've never been taught. They've never studied for themselves, something like that. So today we want to get into the idea of, uh, we've looked at Revelation. Now we want to get into the second doctrine, and that's the doctrine of inspiration. And what this is all about, okay? Before we get into it, here's a diagram of the relationship between Revelation. Oh, I'm going to misspell that almost. Revelation and inspiration. Okay, this, this diagram depicts the relationship. Now, obviously, what we're saying then is that the body of revelation is greater than inspirate, the body of inspiration. Okay? What do we mean by that? What we just mean simply is that God revealed more than was actually written down and preserved in Scripture. Okay? Turn to John 21, 25. Oh, I turned right to it on the second time. Does that ever happen to you? It just means you know your Bible so well, you're like, wow. I'm really good today. Uh, doesn't happen every day, but it happens. John 21, 25. The very last verse in the Gospel of John. It's an interesting verse. I'm sure you're aware of it. If you've been in Christian circles, you've heard this. 
This is in, uh, John says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. There's a bit of hyperbole used there, of course. I mean, the whole world full of books. I mean, you know, can you just imagine literally, you know, whatever. Um, and, but there, there, the point is clear, you know. There's a lot more that Jesus revealed through his deeds that if they were written down, I mean, there would be a lot written down, but it just simply wasn't written down. So the body of revelation in this case is greater than that of inspiration. There are other passages that show similar ideas throughout history that God revealed more information than what we have contained or captured in the Bible. Okay, To illustrate it, let's just say we have... A hundred CDs, let's put it in modern technology, a hundred CDs of information that God revealed, okay? And, uh, but then we have only ten CDs of information that was inspired. So that shows you the difference between the amount that God revealed and the amount that uh, was inspired is a difference of 90 CDs, okay? So, um, apparently, so why? Why don't we have the rest of that revelation written down? Why didn't he do that, Okay. Because evidently it's not what he wanted written down. <laughs> I mean, he's, it's up to him, right? <laughs> he can decide. It had nothing to do with the men, and they were just irresponsible, and they didn't write it down. I mean, John could have written it down, right? But he says, you know, I decided to write down the eight miracles that I decided to write down to provoke faith in the Lord Jesus. I could have written lots more down, but that's all. So uh, there were other things, though, that God revealed through to Daniel, to Malachi, to Enoch in the Old Testament, and that was for them, but, you know, it's not for everybody else, and he has a right to do it that way. But in the end, what we have here, what we have here is sufficient. Okay, that's the all-important point. And if you want to know that body of revelation out here that went to other men, uh, when you get to heaven, you can go ask them if they'll reveal that to you. See? Okay, but for now, we have all that's necessary in the Scripture. Okay? So, now we want to look at three, three points of the doctrine of inspiration. The first is going to be the source. The source is God. And turn to uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16. This is the first point. The source of the scripture is God. Okay? And we're going to 2 Timothy three sixteen uh, because we want to see this word inspiration. Okay, this is where the word is, is found. Okay, it really comes from this verse. Paul coined the term. It wasn't a term in Greek pagan literature. If you read the other external literature to the New Testament uh, Greek, you don't, find, you don't find this word used in pagan literature. Okay, Paul made it up, and it's a compound word, uh, as we'll see, describing the source of Scripture. Okay, so 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, famous verse. That word translated inspired of God is theopneustos. Theopneustos. Okay, it's a compound word. Okay, theos meaning, what's theos? Like theology, theos. God, okay, and nuste or nustos, uh, from like pneuma, like uh, pneumonia, like breath, spirit, okay? So the translators of the NASB obviously translated inspired of God, but I'm not so fond of that translation. Um, why do I not like inspired of God? 
Because when I go to the dictionary, common usage of inspired, it'll say something like, uh, a poet was inspired to write a poem, an artist was inspired to do this painting, or, or whatever. And that's not what the biblical meaning of theopneustos is, okay? It's not like people were inspired by God. You know, I'm just inspired by the idea of God that I'm going to you know, write some books down or something. That's not what happened, okay? That's why it, this word, really what it means is God breathed. And that's, that's the way the NIV puts it, which I prefer in this case, um, because that's Paul's intent. He coined the word to get across the idea, theop, God, neustos, breath, God's breath. Uh, meaning the scriptures are sourced in God. You know, when you breathe, that's the only, try, try to speak without breathing, without it having any air go across your vocal cords. Well, you won't say anything, will you? Okay, it requires breath and exhalation. Okay, just if you put your hand there and you talk, you, you can do that now. You feel comfortable or a small group Bible study. Okay, and you can just feel the breath just coming out, especially when you hit a P or something like that. Or, but the point is you have to have breath, and the point is the scriptures come are the breath of God. They're sourced in God, okay? But now people say, well, yeah, 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 but humans were involved in some way in the writing. And so that's the second point, right? Humans were involved. And we say, the prophet Daniel wrote. Jesus says that, Matthew 24, right? So uh, humans were involved. So the second thing we want to say is, while the source of Scripture is God, the instrument is man. The instrument is man, okay? Second Peter 1 20 to 21. This is the verse we had, passage we had read today. 2 Peter 1. So go ahead and turn there. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. And it's really hard to find these books after Hebrews before Revelation. They're just all snugged in there. And I always struggle in my Bible to, to get to them. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Peter just got done talking about the experience he had of the transfiguration. And uh, here's the problem. One of the problems people have with the Bible is that, well, I mean, humans somehow got involved in the process of writing it down. So if that's the case, then how did it keep from getting messed up? Okay, Because we know humans err. So if humans err and humans are involved in writing the Scripture, then the Scripture must err. Okay? That's just a short, short syllogism to illustrate the problem. Okay? But let's see what we have here about how humans were involved. Peter says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, I want you to notice the four just in the middle there, because when you see that, it means an explanation is being given for the previous uh, phrase, where he says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, is explaining what he meant before when he said, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. See, the problem is people come to this and they think, well, this is saying that it's not up to us to interpret the Bible. That word interpretation, though, if you look this word up, it means, it means this, set free. That's what the word actually means in the lexicon. It means set free. I don't know how they ever came up with an interpretation for that, but um, I'm really not, I don't know. I, I couldn't figure out why. What it's saying is that the prophet, okay, when the prophet wrote scripture, he was not set free. He wasn't just freely acting. Okay, and that's the last expression for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It explains that. It explains how he was not set free. 
It says he was moved by the Holy Spirit from God. Okay, so what does this all mean? It, obviously, it means that humans are involved in writing Scripture, but it means they didn't come up with the idea. Uh, some prophet or some guy wasn't sitting there and say, you know, I'd like to write some Scripture today. I think that's what I like to do this weekend. Uh, no, they didn't say that. Okay, it, what the idea was to do that wasn't sourcing them. It says at the end of the verse, end of verse twenty-one, it says, "Men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God." Moved by the Holy Spirit. See, they didn't wake up one day and say, "I want to write the Bible. I want to write Scripture. I want to be a prophet." No, the Spirit of God moved upon them to do this. Now, this word "moved" is of wind blowing a ship. It's the same word used of wind blowing a ship, and it just gives us a word picture, right? of the Holy Spirit, like wind, picked these men up and blew them or carried them along to speak the words from God. See, they spoke from God. So again, who is the source here of Scripture? Okay, God is the source. They spoke from God. Okay, but they're instruments being blown along or carried along by the Holy Spirit who initiated the process. So it's not just that, you know, humans were involved. It's that no... God is the source of Scripture, and His Spirit was that which moved them to write it and also carried them along as they wrote it to ensure what? To ensure that what they wrote was actually the words of God and not just their ideas, not just their ideas of what God said, not just the concepts, not their interpretation of what God said or anything like that, but the actual words of God, okay? Now, uh, just... Just to polish this off, this point, because obviously you have a lot of different people. People say it was 40 authors of Scripture, human authors, and so forth. Um, true, about 40 different men or so were used by God to write the Scripture. Um, and what's interesting about them is they come from all different walks of life. And that you can actually detect this just from reading what they wrote. You know, Paul writes like Paul. He doesn't write like Peter, okay? And Peter doesn't write like Moses, and Moses doesn't write like Luke. So this shows us that their vocabulary, their profession, their background, okay, everything that was built into each individual author, God decided to use that, okay? If he hadn't, and he had overridden their personalities and their own vocabularies and their own backgrounds, the whole Bible would read exactly the same. But it doesn't read like that. You move from one author to another, and you go, hmm, they, he's really doing things differently. The way he's expressing himself, the vocabulary he uses is different than the vocabulary Paul uses. Actually, that's an enhancement that this is really divinely inspired. You know, it's really the Word of God, okay, because it didn't do away or expend with the human personality that was involved, which is what makes it fascinating. So the Word of God is a unity, but it's got a diversity of authors that reinforce the unity, Okay? And I think we're supposed to be impressed by that. The third end uh, point, and one that naturally falls out of the first point, that the source of this is God, is that the scripture is inerrant. And I always have trouble spelling that word, but I believe I got it right here. It's the double R, there's no double N. We say the, the scriptures are inerrant in their original writings. In college they, or university or seminary, they'll say the original autographer. The autographs. We'll just say original writings, right? What do we mean by that, and why is it necessary to say that the, the, the scripture that God gave us is inerrant in the original writing? That is, as the, pen, the ink fell from the pen of the human author on the parchment, on the scroll, on the vellum, whatever it was. Why do we say that? 
One reason is because this. If God is perfect, okay, and he moved men to speak his word, then his words must be recorded perfectly. Okay? I mean, it couldn't be imperfect originally because a perfect person doesn't produce an imperfect scripture, lest that person now become imperfect. So at least in the original writings, we have to have a perfect or inerrant scripture. Okay? So that's one reason we, we argue for inerrancy. Another is the idea, what is it that God made with Noah after the flood? There was a blood sacrifice and, and all of this, and God entered into what with him? A covenant with him and all flesh. Now, um, same thing with Abraham. What did God enter into with Abraham? He also entered into a covenant. We said these covenants are like contracts. Now, if, if you have a contract, and let's say you go to a court of law, because there's a point of issue in a court of law, and you bring a contract in there, but the contract is distorted. In other words, the contract has got errors in it. How well is that contract going to hold up in the court of law with errors in it? Not going to hold up very well. I mean, people are going to poke holes in that all day long, see, and you're going to lose the case. The Bible basically presents, is presented actually as two testaments, right? Old and New Testament. That's, that's reflecting the covenant, the covenant structure of the Bible. It's a contractual structure. God made a contract with Noah and all flesh, never to flood the world again. Question, has that happened? Has the world ever flooded again, a global flood? Now, we've had local floods, right? We've had lots of local floods. Maybe not in your backyard, but, you know, I don't know, go over to India. Okay, you'll find some over there. If that was just a local flood in Genesis, like some people claim, right, just over in the Mesopotamian River Valley, then has God kept his covenant word to never flood the world again in a local sense? No, he's, he doesn't have integrity. He's lied. He's a liar. But this is one reason we know that it was a global flood, global in extent, and that he's upheld his contract, right? Because he's never flooded the world again. Now, think about the contract he made with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also the one he came into with the nation Israel at Mount Sinai that we're about to study, the Mosaic Covenant. And that covenant, he's going to say, now, look, if you do this, you know, if you bless me, you obey, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey, I'm going to curse you. Now, that was a contract. Now, can we look in Israel's history and see if when they obeyed, they were blessed, and when they disobeyed, they were cursed? Yeah, you can do that. I mean, actually, they have one of the best recorded histories of any nation on the planet, okay? And we can go in there. It's not just in the Bible. It's recorded elsewhere, too, in Josephus and other places, and see that, in fact, exactly what God said he would do, he would do in the contract. So, if this book, which is a contract, is messed up, see, what good is it anymore? You can't measure whether God's been faithful. You can't measure Israel's behavior and whether they were faithful or not. So then it becomes useless. Okay? So this is another reason that the Bible's got to be inerrant, because basically it is a court testimony. It's a witness to God. Okay? Now, this idea that the Bible is inerrant has not always been accepted. I mean, it's been met with quite a bit of resistance, as you can imagine, so we want to deal a little bit with that. One of the, the criticisms is that this is a new doctrine, that this really hasn't been around that long, that this really began in the early 1900s with a few fundamentalists who made it up. Now, if you hear that, and you probably will if you get into these discussions, here's a little bit of ammunition to, uh, to have at your disposal. 
Every quote I'm going to give you is before 1900, okay? So this will do away with that, okay? Gregory of Nazianzus, okay? This is the early centuries of the church, first few centuries. He said this, even the smallest lines in Scripture are due to, to the minute care of the Holy Spirit so that we must pay a careful attention to every slightest shade of meaning. You know how important word meaning is? Have you been in an argument with your spouse? Now, in those cases, we're usually not playing fair, so we'll take liberty. But even if something is not stated perfectly clear, what we're supposed to do as, as mates is give them the benefit of the doubt, right? But we don't do that. We become strict literalists in these conversations so we can win. Now, but the point I'm trying to make is that every word, this is what Gregory was saying, every word has a slight nuance of meaning that is very significant. So that if you start changing them in the Bible and it's not inerrant anymore, well, then you're changing the meaning. You can't ch change the word and, and save the meaning. There are nuances to the meanings. Augustine, you know, Augustine, 5th century, he says this about inerrancy. I believe most firmly that no one of those authors has erred in any respect in writing. Now, it's just what he believes, but I'm just saying, this was around long before the modernist fundamentalist controversy in the early 1900s when this was really under debate. At the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther said, quote, I confidently believe that not one of their authors erred. Not one. And another from the Reformed tradition, John Calvin. He, God, determined that the same oracles should be committed to public records. What he means by that, being public records, is that he, they had to be written down. I mean, the word of God was written down, so it was public information. Why? Why? Why are they so insistent on this? Because it's an Old and New Testament, because it's a, it's a contractual document. That's why. And if God wants his, his behavior to be measurable, but you don't have a faithful preservation of his behavior, it gets thrown out of a court of law. Okay? Because it's not enough to just have oral tradition. Oral tradition is too, uh, it, it's too contaminable, right? That's a word, contaminatable. So they wrote this stuff down. Okay, then people picked it up. They can read. They can measure God's faithfulness. It's good. Now, if you say, well, these were all people who believe the Bible. Obviously, they're going to say that. Okay, well, here's a modern liberal theologian. Okay, doesn't believe the Bible. F.C. Grant, and he says this. It is everywhere taken for granted that Scripture is inerrant. In other words, it's just, it's just supposed by the Bible. Okay? Obviously, then, this is not some doctrine that was generated by a few crazy Bible beaters in the 20th century, okay? This is something that's found directly in Scripture, and it's been a hallmark for the Christian faith for thousands of years. To see another place where the Bible itself holds up inerrancy, turn to Deuteronomy 4.2. And then we'll look at one more, and, and that'll be it. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Just using major passages this morning. These are ones like that could be memorized, right? A lot of these. Deuteronomy 4, 2. You know, if you could just take all the areas of doctrine and, like, isolate some key verses and memorize them, that'd be so beneficial for us, right? So beneficial. We can still have the verses that, you know, we love because they help us through difficult times. But if we got some for every doctrine, just one or two or three, 
it would transform our lives. Okay? Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Uh, wh- what would be the problem with changing, you know, like adding or taking away words? Well, you wouldn't be able to keep the commandments of the Lord anymore because they'd be changed. You wouldn't know what they were. Okay? For the New Testament, turn to Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. Right at the end of history, revelatory history. Okay, interesting. You don't find this at the end of Ephesians. You don't find this at the end of the Acts, the book of Acts or something like that. But right at the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 18. Look at the concern here that God has for his word. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Again, don't add, don't take away the words. Okay? Now, does this sound like God is a little bit serious about keeping the scripture pure? Okay, about people coming along saying, I got a word from God. I'm Muhammad. I'm Muhammad the prophet. I got a word from God. No, you didn't. The Bible says don't add anything to the word of God. I'm Joseph Smith, though. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an angel. You don't get a word from God because God said don't add, don't take away. If you say add, you're against God. It's not that complicated, right? The last idea I want to interact with real briefly is with respect to inerrancy and uh, something that's just maybe will help you in discussions with people. Again, for centuries, people have tried to show errors in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's like every, every generation comes along with this person and goes, oh, I found errors in the Bible. Really? I mean, they did that last century, the century before that, the century before that, the century before that, the century before that. You, what, you got something new? No, you haven't got anything new. It's always the same stuff. Okay, I got books in my library. You want some? They're called Difficulties in the Bible, Bible Difficulties. Every Bible difficulty in the Bible. I got all these Bible difficulty books. Okay? In other words, what I'm saying with these is all these things have been answered. Okay? Over and over and over. Now, maybe you didn't like the answer, but they've been answered. Read another book. They've got other answers, okay? There are solutions to these types of things. But the whole point is what? We, people outside, want to discredit the Bible, okay? Isn't that exactly what's been going on from the beginning with Adam and Eve? What's the very first, what's the very first challenge that comes to the Scripture to Eve? We have this story about Satan coming, in, well, the serpent, and says, did God say? You know, like, let's cast doubt that God really said it. That's where we always have to start. Because he wants to undermine what? Our ability to have faith in the Word of God, to trust God. Okay? So every generation is the same thing. You know, there's got a contradiction in the Bible. God, you know, it's, it's wrong and so forth and so on. There are answers to all those, but here on a deeper level, think about this. Here's a question you can respond with to someone who says there's an there's a error in the Bible. On what basis are you judging that that's an error? Okay, if you, they wanted to, to say there's an error so they can reject inerrancy, okay? If you reject the inerrancy of Scripture, well, what standard are you erecting in order to base that judgment on? Okay. Otherwise, how do you know there's a problem with the Scripture if you don't have some standard you're appealing to that's over and above and beyond the Scripture? See, essentially what, what has happened is they have just moved inerrancy to another source, that's what's going on, okay? 
This is where you can very nicely, you know, challenge them to say, because if someone makes a charge against the Bible's accuracy, they have to at the same time be erecting some standard as a basis to which they are judging the Bible. So they haven't gotten it rid of inerrancy. That's the thing. That's the key idea. They've just transferred it to somewhere else, okay? Everyone believes in inerrancy, folks. Everybody, okay? It's just whether it's God and his word or man and his word. So at root, this is really a simple issue, okay? You can't have it both ways. Inerrancy could be in God or in man, but it can't be in God and man in the way that they're framing the problem, okay? So everyone believes in inerrancy. It's just a matter of where they put it, okay? And if you claim there is no inerrancy what, anywhere, well, you, you, now you can't make any value claims at all because you have no standard by which to judge anything. You can't make a moral judgment. You can't make a truth claim. You can't make a knowledge claim. Okay, because on the basis of what? See, everybody is intrinsically imp implying that they do believe in inerrancy. It's somewhere, okay? So people can complain against the Bible and say it does not inerrant, but let's be honest. You are still claiming to have inerrancy somewhere when you do that. Bottom line. Okay, let's, uh, let's close. I'll get, have a word of prayer. And uh, everybody who's sharing potluck with us, love to see you back there. If you didn't happen to bring anything, I'm sure you can come and still, you know, fellowship some and, and eat some too. We welcome you. Okay, let's have, let's have a word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think about your word, which is the source of truth. We thank you it's sourced in God. We thank you that you use humans of varying personalities, uh, moved by the Spirit of God, carried along uh, to speak the very words of God. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust uh, the word of God. We have a basis for living by faith uh, because we know that you have spoken out of your omniscience into history and had it recorded so that we can study to show ourselves approved and live by faith. We thank you for uh, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, too, since he's the fulfillment of many respects of Old Testament prophecy uh, in order to provide our salvation, that he paid the penalty for our sins in full so that through faith in him uh, we have everlasting life. And there's nothing we can do to attain that or acquire that of our own merit it's simply putting our trust in the one in whom all merit is found, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him, Lord, and we thank you that he's been fully accepted by you. His, his payment was, was fully accepted, and when we trust in him, we are fully accepted. We thank you so much for all the, the blessings you provide for us, and uh, pray we would learn to live more effectively by faith. And thank you for the food that has been provided today, the hands that prepared it. May we enjoy this meal and be able to fellowship over it and enjoy one another. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.